Good morning, everyone. Um, I want to take just the first part of this um, and welcome you all and to acknowledge that in a room this size with a crowd of this size, I know and I acknowledge that not everyone is a Christ follower. Not everyone here believes the same thing that I believe. And I just want to acknowledge you and say that that is okay. Um, I wrote this lesson today with, with you in mind. And for those of you who are Christ followers, I hope this lesson will also challenge and encourage you this morning in your faith and in your walk. Um, speaking of the lesson, though, I must have made a mistake because I have here in my notes the first thing I'm supposed to tell an embarrassing story about myself. Um, God tends to give me my best lessons when he, um, when he humbles me. Uh, so I'm going to tell a little bit of a story on myself, and this involves myself, my brother, and our friend Michael. Um, several years ago, we, uh, we decided that we were going to do something adventurous. We were going to plan a hiking trip uh, across a portion of the Appalachian Trail. We were, were kind of hikers, so we, we kind of knew what we were doing. We'd been backpacking before, and so we set out that in the middle of a m March, we were going to pick three days and go 30 miles along the AT. We were going to start at Newfound Gap and head northeast and uh, stay at a couple of shelters along the way and then end up somewhere around Cosby area and come down. And so we were really excited. We had been prepping for a while. We kind of knew what to bring. We knew it would be the middle of March, so it would be a little bit cold. We uh, packed our cold weather gear. We packed waterproof boots or at least I did. Um, my brother didn't. I'll get to that in a second. Um, we packed our food, our stoves, our sleeping bags. We thought we were ready. Um, in Knoxville at that time, it was hitting upper 60s, low 70s. So while I knew that the temperature would be different on top of the mountains, I didn't realize how much. So <laughs> we set out early that morning. We, the night before, we dropped off our car at the inn. I mean, we kind of knew what we were doing, I thought. And so we set out that morning, my brother, myself, my friend Michael, and his wife. And we start up the trail, and it's a gorgeous morning, clear blue sky, a little, well, very brisk. And uh, we get about a mile in, and it's starting to climb in elevation. We notice, oh, there's a light dusting of snow on the ground. How pretty. This is going to be fabulous. We're going to be, you know, how novel to walk, you know, in a little bit of snow along the AT and, and camp. It's going to be great. Um, however, we got two miles in and the snow kept building um, at an alarming rate. And, and pretty soon it was two inches, three inches, four inches, five inches, six inches. And we're like, huh, I wonder when this is going to stop. Um, <laughs> okay. You know, my, my boots are still okay at this point, but uh, I hope it doesn't get any deep, deeper. And this is when the first of our problems started to come out because my friend's wife started to get sick. She started coughing, having a really hard time. And so we had to make a decision. There was no way. She came to the point where she realized there's no way she's going to make 30 miles in a few days of this. So we came up with a brilliant plan. Brilliant. Um, we, Michael came up to me and he said, all right, I've got to take her back. We said, okay, and instead of all of us going back and then proceeding again, we were about three miles in at this point, um, we said, all right, Michael, you will take your wife back. My brother and I will go on, but we'll be slow, and you can catch me and my brother up because you're much better at hiking than we are. We thought this was a genius plan. 
So we left. My brother and I went on to Charlie's Bunyan, which is this beautiful outcrop of rock, and we had lunch. And Michael took his wife back to the car at Newfound Gap and then started back to catch up with us. Well, you get close to Charlie's Bunyan, and in the middle of March, there's a lot of snow. A lot of snow. I mean, it, it had gotten to where the packed down portion of the trail could be up to a foot deep. And then the sides of either side of the trail, some which were drop-offs, could just be drifts of snow. And the trail got pretty narrow in some places. And, and one time I can remember my brother slipping, and he's bigger than I am, he's taller than I am, and he slipped and fell into a snow drift that went up to his waist. We were not prepared for that at all. Like, our boots, it didn't matter that they were waterproof because the boots sank down halfway through the snow, and so our pants were getting soaked, our feet were waterlogged, and every step we took, we had to trudge through a foot of snow. And so, when I say slow, that was like an understatement. We did, <laughs> it took us over an hour to do each mile, and we had to go 10 miles in the first day to reach our shelter. It took us 11 hours for me and my brother to reach the shelter, which was a little sign off the Appalachian Trail, and you went off about a quarter of a mile, and there was this three-walled hut that you could sleep in. And so my brother and I were exhausted. We were, whew, that was enough. We hoped the next day, and it, we had planned the next day to be a little bit easier. The problem, however, was that Michael never found us. My brother and I, we ate dinner, we unrolled our sleeping bags, we slept next to some sketchy strangers, and during the night, I would wake up about every two hours and kind of poke my head up and say, did Michael show up? He never showed. We woke up the next morning, no Michael. And so what did my brother and I do? We don't know. We can either go forward and hope that he catches us up at the next checkpoint a few miles down the road that we had set up, or we have to go back and look for his dead body along the side of the trail. Which in the night, I mean, there were some drop-offs and the snow was making the trail hard to see. That was a very real possibility to us. So we decided to do the safe thing and to go back. Our sketchy strangers that we slept next to, we told them about Michael's description and we said, hey, you're going on. If you see him, let him know that we've gone back to look for his dead body and, and to get off the mountain as soon as possible if you find it. And so my brother and I, we start heading back the 10 miles that we just came. And, and I noticed that on the way back, it was more uphill than downhill. So the way back was even worse than it was the way forward the day before. And we were asking everybody, we met on the trail, we, were, we finally got some cell reception. I called my wife, I said, Lindsay, we have issues. We lost Michael, he never showed up. Call the rangers, get something organized. So she did and they had to wait 24 hours before they start a search. And so we were getting all that set up, all the family was called. We told them we were heading back to look for him. And about half of the day through, my brother and I are literally dying. We are having issues. Every step is like agony. Our feet are just blocks of ice. Um, our arms, even though we have hiking poles, they've been bent, <laughs> and, and we're struggling. It's like, my brother and I are in this life or death situation. I'm like, we're going to make it, Corey, come on. You've got to eat something. I was like force feeding him to get some protein. And so we take a break about halfway through the day and just to try to catch our breath uh, before we go on a little further. And I look up 
and I see this guy. And did you ever have one of those moments when you're doing something that you thought you were good at, but then someone comes along and is doing something the same way, the same thing you're doing, only he's a lot better at it? Like, and when I say a lot, like not even on the same level. Like making you feel horrible he's that good at it. This guy, this hiker, came by, and I kid you not, he was wearing red short jogging shorts, a t-shirt, small little boots, and a backpack. And he was literally just skipping along the top of the snow. His feet weren't even sinking. And I just looked at him with envy and hatred in my eyes. Asked him if he had seen a dead body on the side of the road, and he said no. And, you know, you know and that's, I try to look cool. I'm cool, I'm not struggling at all. Have a good trip. Yeah, we're good. <laughs> that, I, that moment is etched into my mind. And it actually, we made it back. Um, it took my brother and I 12 hours to make it back to our car that day. Um, and my friend was not dead. He had hiked an extra six miles that day, and it had gotten dark, and he passed up the sign that led to the shelter. He passed up the trail, and he went as far as he could, <laughs> and then he actually just had to get his sleeping bag out and sleep on the snow on the trail. And, uh, and then the strangers that we shared the shelter with caught up to him that next day and told him what had happened, and he found a way off the mountain. So nothing bad happened on that story, but it was like life-changing for me. Um, I have never been so lost and kind of humiliated. Um, <laughs> there's nothing like that feeling. I, that picture of this guy just frolicking along the tops of the snow is still vividly etched in my mind, and I'm struggling so much, so much. And, and you know, it reminded me of one of Jake's last points last week. He said, you know, when you're in the presence of someone or something great, it can be kind of terrifying. Well, to me, that's what this guy was. I thought, how are you doing this? He totally put me in my place. And whenever I think or whenever I see or experience something or someone great here on earth, I can't help but think, how much greater is God? How much greater is his glory than anything I can see, than any person I can meet? And it's kind of like standing at the bottom of a waterfall um, a couple of summers ago, I got to take the high schoolers to Toronto on a mission trip, and on our way back, we, we got to stop by Niagara Falls, and we took the boat out, and it was driving us around as close as they dare come to the bottom of the falls, and that is a moment you just don't forget. It's nothing but water running over the edge of a piece of dirt, or the edge of a rock, but wow, you know you're standing in front of something great, something with so much power and magnificence. And so if someone like this hiker or something like Niagara Falls can put me in my place, then how much more so can God's glory put us in our place? Last week, Jake talked about the what of God's glory. And the definition uh, that we came up is, with is basically this. The glory of God is the holiness of God put on display. The glory of God is the holiness of God put on display. Or uh, if you want to go all Piper about it, John Piper, he says the glory of God is the manifest beauty of his holiness. He's good with words. And this week I want to talk about the so what of God's glory alone. Today we're going to wrap up our series on the five solas. 
Grace alone, faith alone, Christ alone, scripture alone, and now God's glory alone. R.C. Sproul writes, each sola is important, but the first four really exist to preserve the last one, namely the glory of God. I think the glory of God alone is the glue that holds them all together. It's really the answer to the big question, why? Why our existence? Why the universe? What's the purpose? God's glory alone. It's the answer. God's glory is the reason behind our existence and the existence of the entire universe. And so when Pastor Sam asked me to preach and teach on God's glory and to select a passage, I thought, how am I going to do this? Um, All right, everybody, just turn to Genesis 1. We're going to start reading. Basically, that's it, because this whole thing is about God's glory. That's it. That's all there is. God's glory. (laughs) Life is about God's glory alone. And the Hebrew word for glory means weight, weightiness. And, And simple physics teaches us that when something of a massive weight collides with something of a lesser, much lesser weight, then that object of lesser weight gets radically changed. And this is what happens when God's glory collides with us. We are changed. And so the main question that I want to pose to you today is this. It's how we're changed. Or another way of saying it might be, in light of God's glory, how do we respond? So with Jake's lesson last week, I I hope we were able to taste a little bit of it, to understand what it is and what we mean by it. And this week, I want to go into, well, how do we respond to this? Because if there is something this true and this magnificent out there, such as God's glory, then it begs a response. Number one, when we first catch a glimpse of God's glory the first and proper response is fear. That's it. The first and proper response. It doesn't matter who you are. Already Christian, non-Christian, it doesn't matter. When you get a taste, a vision of God's glory, the first response is fear. Go back to Isaiah 6, where we were last week. When Isaiah had this vision of God in the temple and his glory filled the room, he said, "'Woe is me, for I am lost.'" For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Fear. We can look at the story of Moses when he was in the wilderness leading his his, uh, father-in-law's flock of sheep through the mountains. And he looked over to the side and he saw this burning bush. Let's read about his reaction. When the Lord saw that Moses had turned aside to see, God called him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. Then he said, do not come near. Take off your sandals from your feet. For the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And God said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And how did Moses respond? It said, and Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Now, there are two kinds of fear. One is, one is I can ascribe kind of like a terrifying fear, a terror. 
This is when um, you watch a scary movie, or this is when you know, you're walking through your house or your garage barefoot and a spider crawls over it. All right? That, that is probably one of the most terrifying things I can think of. If that were to happen today, my, I'd be up there. I would jump so high, okay? Um, that's a terror. Scared, it's when you hear a noise in the middle of the night and you don't know what it is. The other kind of fear is a healthy fear, a good fear, a reverent fear. The fear we have when we understand for the first time a little bit of God's place in the way of things and our place in the way of things. The reaction that should be is fear. It grows out of this recognition of our place in the universe. The glory of God, if we were to catch a glimpse of it, it exposes our own sinfulness and our own shortcomings. And it exposes our complete inability to save ourselves. I think this is what Isaiah was feeling when he saw the glory of God in that temple. He was done. He was lost. But you know what? This is a good place to be. This is a very good place to be. The fear of God is not something that is a bad thing by any means. And you know, it's not even something that can never be, that should ever be lost. No matter how long you've been a Christian. Your fear of God should never go away. It should never subside. You should never get used to the idea of God's glory. In fact, as, as we grow in our walk, as we grow in our faith, our fear of God should grow with it. As, we, as he reveals himself more and as we understand more about who he is and what he does, our fear and respect and our reverence should only grow. Proverbs 9.10 says that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. Fear of God is a good thing. It's a healthy thing. And I think it presents two ways of responding. So, number one, when we catch a glimpse of God's glory, when he shows us his place and our place in the order of things, fear is our first response. The second is this. Fear can lead us in one of two directions. Avoidance or repentance? Now, I want to talk about the negative first. When we see the glory of God and we feel that sense of awe, of fear, it can stay at that terror level. And, and it can put us, puts many people into a fight or flight. That kind of fear. And you know what? Many people... Even in the Bible, we have example after example of people who chose, when they saw the glory of God, they chose to fight against it or to run away from it or at the very least try to ignore that it existed. Try to ignore it as if they could do that. Either way, we know that it's all temporary because we know that a day is coming when no one will be able to ignore it. No one will be able to fight it. No one will be able to run away from it. Because every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That day is coming. But man, while we're here on earth, people spend a lot of time trying to fight against God's truth, trying to run from it and rationalize their own sinfulness, and, or at least just trying to ignore it and act like it's not there. If we look at the Bible, we see many examples of people with these negative reactions. 
Um, we just look at the people who reacted to Jesus. Jesus was the living embodiment of God here on earth. He said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Yet how did people react to him? Some ran from him. Some ignored him. And there were even those who fought against him and crucified him. That's one way our fear can lead us. And in fact, we have to look no further than Satan and his demons to see where fear can lead. Satan and his fallen angels ran from God's glory. They still fight God's glory. And they know the truth of it. They saw it with their own eyes. They were in the presence of his glory and yet turned away. James writes uh, to his audience, you know, you believe that God is one. Well, you do well. But even the demons believe and they shudder. Demons fear the glory of God. But it's not going to save them because they've chose, chosen to avoid it in one way or another. So let us not make the same mistake. Let our fear of God turn into reverence and awe and wonder and lead us to repentance. And this is hard. This is a much harder path. Because, you know, even though I'm a Christian and I have been for a while, I still struggle with this at times. Um, in my flesh, I don't want to come to grips with the sinfulness in my life that the glory of God exposes. I'd rather rationalize itself or, or as a Christian, I'd rather keep myself too busy to think about it. As crazy as this sounds, I still want to be the hero of my own story. You know, and that's, that's our flesh within us. We want to be the hero of our own story. We are glory thieves, or glory hogs, as we say in the South. We are glory thieves. But you know what? God's glory exposes that it's not my story at all. Forget about me being the hero of the story. It's not even my story to begin with. It's all God's story. It's about his glory. And we have the privilege, the honor, the opportunity to play a part. I would rather let my fear lead me to repentance. And I know it's harder than avoidance. We can either run from God's glory or we can cling to it. And clinging to God's glory means that we have to accept in humility, I know, in humility, we have to accept our total need and dependence on God. Um, there's perhaps no more vivid a picture of repentance than Job. So if you will, turn in your Bibles to Job. Um, if you're wondering where that is, just open your Bible to the middle. You'll hit Proverbs or Psalms. Go left one book, and, uh, and you'll hit Job. And we're going to be in Job 38 to start off with. So let me catch you up just really fast if you're unfamiliar with the story. Um, Job was a great guy. He honored God, loved the Lord, followed his commands, and he had done well for himself. God had blessed him with everything he could ever want. Family, friends, possessions, Job had it all. One day, Satan came to challenge God's glory, and he said, you know what? He's only good to you because you've been good to him. Take away everything he has, and he'll curse you. The Lord said, all right. I wouldn't want to be Job in that deal, but the Lord said, okay. 
And so Satan, he allows Satan to take away everything from Job. His family, his possessions, his employees, his servants, cattle, everything, even his health. And so Job, again, never curses God, even though his friends, his wife, everybody tells him to just curse God and die. Job never does. But towards the end, towards the middle of the book, Job starts to ask why. This is so unfair. God, why is all this happening? Everything seems to be out to get me. The universe is just wrong. Evil wins. Why? And, and the Lord speaks to Job through Elihu for a little while. But then we get to chapter 38, and the Lord decides to answer Job himself directly. And boy, I wouldn't want to be Job right here. Verse 1. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Dress for action like a man. I will question you and you make it known to me. Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? <laughs> All right. So going back to my hiking story, this is a put-in-your-place moment for Job. Job had... From a worldly view, an earthly view, Job had more excuses to be upset with God than I, I hope I will ever have. But God is about to, to show Job where he stands and who he is. And so God, God goes on for two chapters talking about creation and how he set everything in its order, everything in its place. And we go to chapter 40, verse 1. And the Lord, after saying these things, comes to Job and said, Shall a fault finder contend with the Almighty? He who argues with God, let him answer. And Job in verse 3. <laughs> then Job answered the Lord and said, Behold, I am of small account. Shall, what shall I answer you? I lay my hand on my mouth. I have spoken once and I will not answer twice, but I will proceed no further. Job is beginning to get it. He's experienced this fear. God has spoken to him out of the whirlwind. And this fear, I'm so thankful, this fear and this glimpse of God's glory is going to direct Job towards repentance. After this, God goes on for another two chapters talking about how he was not only the Lord of creation, but he controls everything. He controls good, and he even is sovereign over evil. Sovereign over the beasts, behemoth and Leviathan. And we get to one of the most beautiful passages, but tough passages in all scripture, in chapter 42, verse 1. Job, after hearing all this, after, you know, at this point in his life, he had known about God. He'd been taught about God. But now he has heard his voice. He has seen God with his eyes. Job answered the Lord and said, I know you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. 
Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore, I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. Hear and I will speak, I will question you, and you make it known to me. I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eyes see you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. What a beautiful place to be. What a wonderful place to be, to be that dependent on God Almighty. So we hope that fear does not lead us into avoidance, but fear leads us to repentance. And you know what? We need to stay there. We never go away from that repentance. It's a dependency on God, a realizing of who he is and who we are. And that leads me to my final point. It's that if we have seen the Lord and fear him and are in a state of constant repentance and dependence on him, then we must live. This is how we respond now. We must live for the glory of God alone. No one else. And so my question then becomes, how can a sinner like me possibly bring God glory? You know, I'm messed up, I'm broken. How do I bring God glory? Well, I think any creation brings its creator glory by being what its creator made it to be and doing what its creator made it to do. A piece of art glorifies the artist by being beautiful and inspiring others. A clock or a watch glorifies its maker by telling the time accurately and lasting. How are we, what were we created for? How do we bring glory to God? I think we gotta go all the way over to John 15 to find out. Famous passage. Um, but I don't always think of it in terms of God's glory until now. Chapter 15, starting in verse five, Jesus, in his own words, is gonna tell us. He's gonna tell us what we were created for. How do we bring God glory? This is it. He says in verse five, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire and burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. Here's the key. Verse eight, by this, my father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. So in answering this question, we gotta go, we look here and we go even all the way back to Genesis when the Lord first commanded us to do that. He made us in his image. That's who we were, we were created to be, is image bearers. Sin messed it up, but that image is still redeemable through Christ. And what was the first command that he commanded Adam and Eve to do? Go forth, be fruitful, and multiply. Be fruitful. And here it is, Jesus in John 15 saying, this is how you glorify the Father, by bearing fruit. And so I don't mean fruit in just the sense of raising children. Um, 
Let's define it as this. Bearing fruit is any outward manifestation. Anything, deeds, actions, words, all of it. Any outward manifestation of the image and love of God inside us. We have the spirit of God inside us and the fruit of the spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. So any way that we can outwardly manifest that brings God glory and is us bearing fruit. Colossians 3.17, Sam read it earlier, says, whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. We were created to be a reflection of his glory and to do good works and bear fruit. I'm going to close with this. Um, there was a, in thinking about God's glory, there is a wonderful and amazing story that happened in the Old Testament with Moses. Um, not just the burning bush, but the Israelites, he had led them out of Egypt, across the sea, in over to Mount Sinai. And he had gotten the first set of tablets and came down and saw that they had made idols and been unfaithful and he broke them and had to go up for a second time. Well, there's this really amazing part in Exodus chapter 34 and it says that after he had the second tablets, when Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the two tablets of the testimony in his hands, as he came down from the mountain, Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone, glowed, because he had been talking with God. Moses was reflecting the literal glory of God through his skin. He was glowing. How did the people respond? Aaron and all the people of Israel saw Moses, and behold, the skin of his face shone, and they were afraid to come near him. People were afraid because Moses was reflecting God's glory. And thankfully, their fear turned to reverence and awe and obedience, at least for a time. And you know what? It gave them confidence that God was with them. They could be confident in following God's commands and in bearing fruit. They had seen his glory through Moses. And I wonder if that's what Jesus had in mind when he was giving, I mean, this is just an opinion, me thinking. Um, but there's something amazing when, when we ref do what we are supposed to do and when we are who God created us to be. It, it changes things. It affects people, us and others. And I wonder if God had, or if Jesus had this, this picture of Moses glowing when he was giving the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5. And he said this to the crowd. He said, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all the house. In the same way, let your light shine so that others may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. So for us, let our light shine. This is how we bring glory to God. We were created to bear his image and to bear fruit Pray with me. Lord Jesus, I thank you so much for creating us the way you have, for giving me a part of your story. Lord, for showing me a glimpse of who you are, 
And Lord, that is my prayer for everyone in this room this morning, that you might reveal yourself to them. If they've never seen you before, Lord, that, that their fear might lead to repentance and that repentance might lead to a life of bearing fruit. And for those already in here, Lord, when you remind them of who you are and what they have made a commitment and a covenant with, Lord, that they might be encouraged and challenged to live for you. Lord, it is with a sense of great repentance and thanks, Lord, that I give you glory um, for all that you have done, Lord. Please continue to work through West Park. Continue to work through this family as a church body so that our community might see your light. It's in your name I pray. Amen.